I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. We go behind those headlines, bring you what is often unheard, a fresh perspective. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are syndicated and on air nationally across the U.S. and internationally in Ghana and on WFM 91.7 in Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined every week by badass and brilliant women of color. We discuss and dissect stories on politics, policy, social justice, culture, race, love, gender, all through the lens of the media. Today, we bring you three conversations. Zoe Saldana, goddamn, playing Nina, provoking a storm. South Africa, goddamn, virginity tests for college-bound girls. Georgia, goddamn, teacher to a student. You're dumb, have sex, make babies. All of that, coming up. Our contributors this week are Shani Jamila and Dr. Yabba Blay. Dr. Yabba Blay is a professor, producer, and publisher. Dr. Blay is the Dan Blue Endowed Chair in Political Science at North Carolina Central University, the creator of the multimedia global project Pretty Period, and publisher and editor-in-chief of Black Print Press. Dr. Blay is a global expert on issues of colorism and identity. Shani Jamila is an artist, activist, and human rights advocate. Shani is director of the Human Rights Project at New York's Urban Justice Center. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Our first conversation, Zoe Saldana, goddamn, playing Nina, provoking a storm. My skin is black. My arms are long. My back is strong Strong enough to take the pain Inflicted again and again What do they call me? They call her the High Priestess, the one and only Ms. Nina. In April, a biopic of the high priestess herself, Nina Simone, hits the big screen. The deep chocolate-skinned chanteuse, composer, writer, musician, pianist, activist, who battled racism, her personal demons, and America's deadly white supremacy, poured her pain and power into songs whose legacy live to this day. That long neck, those fingers on the piano keys, that voice, that skin, that nose, for Nina, her blackness, so rejected by her America, was a pivotal focus for her art and her activism. So many songs. Mississippi, goddamn. Black is the color of my true love's name. Four women, feeling good, and on and on and on. Nina recorded more than 40 albums, from classical to jazz to blues to R&B to folk to pop. Her musical style was as uncontained as her brilliance. Her relationship with rejection started young, as did her activism. Her application to the prestigious Philadelphia-based Curtis Institute of Music was rejected. For Nina, that rejection was rooted in race. 
She played and lived all over the world, Switzerland, Liberia, the Netherlands, and France, looking to leave the racist injustice of America for other spaces. Then and now, Nina is a soundtrack, not just a collection of songs and albums, but a soundtrack, a historical map, a guide to political and personal times. When Nina was born in February 1933, Franklin D. Roosevelt was America's president and had just survived an assassination attempt. Nina's first piece of activism was age 12, when during her debut piano recital in a church, her parents, who sat in the front row, were asked to move to the back to make room for white people. Nina stopped playing, refused to play, until her parents were moved to the front. From the beginning, her art and her activism were intertwined. Her genius and her battles with mental illness, drink and drugs have all been documented, partly in What Happened, Miss Simone, a documentary that includes an interview with her daughter, Lisa Celeste Stroud. And then came Nina the biopic, and with it comes Zoe Saldana, a gifted actress who was cast to play Miss Simone. The story of who would play Nina became a public debate. Who could play Nina? Who should play Nina? This marriage of genius and pain of blackness and musical magic, a walking musical complex black woman. Early casting conversations featured Grammy award-winning singer Mary J. Blige. That choice sparked fierce debate. The actress who got the role was Zoe Saldana. Here's the trailer. Zoe Saldana, a Dominican, light-skinned actress wearing blackface and prosthetics to play Nina. 
Zoe cast as Nina has caused outrage. Think pieces have been written denouncing the choice and the use of blackface in publications like The Guardian newspaper and The Root. And there have been calls to support her from other actresses like Oscar-nominated Queen Latifah and actress Paula Patton, who called Zoe's choice to play the role, quote, bold and brave, unquote. The film drops in April. Will you see it? Let's talk. Playing Nina, being in blackface, why Zoe? And really, what the hell? Dr. Yababla, let me start with you. <laughs> First, Esther, let me thank you for giving a thorough background to Nina Simone, because if you understand all that Nina was and continues to be for us, then you understand why this is such a problem, right? And so... <sighs> The fact that you have actual live human beings who can actually act and potentially sing, like Uzo Aduba, like Adipero Oduye, like Lorraine Toussaint, when you have women who could aesthetically and visually capture more of what Nina represents for us, how is it that you then cast Zoe Saldana? Like, if we're honest, she's a good actress, but she's not so good that you just had to have her play Nina. Instead, what you do is you put dark makeup on her and you put prosthetics on her. Now, I want to say this about the blackface arguments because I've seen people go back and forth about what the issues are. Um, I saw someone tweet, you know, basically, why do we have a problem with Zoe wearing this blackface, as it were, and didn't say anything when Forrest Whitaker and Kerry Washington wore blackface in um, – or wore darker makeup in The Last King of Scotland. And for me, I think the thing that makes this particular portrayal so problematic is the idea that if we know what Nina stood for, at a time where you have the Dorothy Dandridges and the Lena Horns of the world, her aesthetic was very powerful, not just um, in the mainstream, but for people who were receiving her, right? And she was fighting against the idea in so many ways that people were seeing darker-skinned women in negative light and you create a biopic of her life and you make her grotesque. I mean, it makes me feel like whoever wrote directed or conceived of this in this way actually subscribes to that lens that says a dark skinned woman is not beautiful because you make no effort whatsoever to show Nina as beautiful, to even show her as a human being. When I looked at the trailer, it looks grotesque and I'm offended. You know, and so there are a lot of issues. I think those are the ones that, that, that stand out for me. But also this is the idea that even in this conversation, as we are being critical of the film at the point of now a trailer and a release date, why aren't we talking about or to David Oyelowo, who is an executive director on the film, who is cast in the film? We're focusing a lot of our energy on Zoe Saldana. So I think that's an interesting conversation as well. Shani Jamila. What I know that I know that I know that I know is that I would not want Nina Spirit coming for me if I was the actress mm. who didn't do her right. I would not want it. And even if we assume that Zoe Saldana's intentions were pure and those of the producer and the filmmakers and the casting director and all those involved were good, I think the prosthetic and the blackface are the kinds of accommodation that one makes to achieve a non-human aesthetic or when you're portraying somebody with deep deformities or someone who's been in a horrible accident. It's like the kind of effects that they do on Grey's Anatomy, you know? 
they're not what one does to honor the life story of someone as prolific and as rooted in the beauty of her blackness as Nina Simone. And that's why her estate tweeted back at Zoe when she uh, quoted uh, Nina's um, uh, statement about freedom equaling no fear. Cute story, but keep her name out your mouth for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> like when it gets to that point, this is why artists like the brilliant Bahamu who are making work like his recent digital collage uh, called See It Don't Work That Way. And and in that collage, what he does is juxtapose Denai Guerrero and Lupita Nyong'o and all of the gorgeous ladies of Eclipse who are on the cover of Uptown right now, which the cover is astoundingly beautiful. I definitely encourage you all to check it out if you haven't seen it already. But he juxtaposes those women with Zoe and Blackface as Nina. Um, and what that does is just kind of visually make the point that there were so many other options for women to play her or even an opportunity to discover a new actress, to give her a platform. But what you don't do is take one of the few chances we have to focus on how Nina's black life mattered and squander it. Because when you do that, you end up with a controversy that will be bigger than the film itself. Powerful points. I'm a playwright. And so when it comes to the question of casting, I hear all these arguments about the right to imagine anybody in any role. And I just always say we know that that is not the truth, because in casting, um, in casting someone, who they were, how they lived, why you choose them, all those questions really matter. Um, why you make a particular choice matters. So I'm intrigued about two things. Um, I take your point, Yaba, about the idea of David Oyelowo being an executive producer. So therefore, it seems to me having maybe some kind of power over who gets to ultimately play Nina. And, you know, you want to ask him, was you, were you really okay with this choice? That's the first part. And the second part is... I'm intrigued by the actress's support of Zoe in the role because for Nina Simone, um, blackness was never just color. It was never just who she was in the world. It's, it played such a specific role in her relationship to her art and in the way she crafted her music and the reaction that she got globally. It played such a specific role that in thinking about who who can bring that to life? You have to think about an actress who understands what that means if you're talking about really honoring the role and the way the role can, can be. And so the thing about watching the trailer is, for me, it's actually incredibly distracting. It's like a really, really, really bad tan where you're wondering, did they just not, do they need some more shea butter? Like, will coconut oil help? Like, the, 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 it's just... <laughs> <laughs> Can we get some aloe? All the <laughs> do we need <laughs> like do we need some more Iman makeup? What happened? Because even the it's just distracting. So I'm I, I'm not even I had to watch it several times to pay attention to even the performance. And so um it's it's bigger than disappointment because it's actually about saying how do we feel about the way our sheroes need to be conveyed on the big screen? What kinds of casting choices are we thinking about and why do they matter? But let's, let's, let's go in on that, David, on your level for a second and think about as executive producer, does he have casting 
power choice. Did he even come on board when Zoe had already been cast? I'm just trying to think of the trajectory of how that um, happens. And that if he then had the power, I wonder if there was a conversation about, is Zoe really the person who can actually play this role? Given the stature that he reached post-Selma and uh, his, the way he played Martin Luther King. I have no idea what's happening behind the scenes, but what I do know is that when I saw his name and his face associated with the film, it does lend it a certain amount of credence, a certain amount of weight, because of the respect that he's garnered over the course of his career for the role that he's chosen, you know? Um, so that is definitely something that we have to consider. But I, I think that the reason why it becomes such a, a, a quandary, maybe is the word I'm looking for, is that this casting choice of Zoe posits blackness as something that has to be accommodated, you know, um, or as something that has to be performed which I think is a direct refutation of everything that Nina stood for. So it calls into question the motives of the people who are putting the film together. And also, maybe it's not even as, as suspicious as the motives. Maybe it's just their, their understanding. Do they know who this woman was? Do they know that? You Do know, they care? if they knew that, would they have made these kinds of choices? And so... Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where I'm left with it. Yeah, and again, for me, you know, it's just a question that came up for me um, because I just think it's interesting how we gender controversy, you know, and I get it because Zoe is the person who is wearing the makeup and the prosthetics and looking ridiculous, so she becomes the target in many ways. But it's so interesting that we continue to look at artists as if they have a quote-unquote choice and forget how they are also plugged into a particular power structure and system and the types of decisions they have to make. So Zoe is one part of the controversy, but we can also talk to someone who, if nothing else, is in some level of power, at least by name, right? And because there is a level of respect for him post his Selma performance and others, um, can you give us some insight? Because people are out here confused and upset and bothered. Can you mm. calm us down, please? Say something, anything, but I haven't seen anything that he's had to say about the film. So, so it's two things there. That's really interesting, the idea of the way we gender con controversy. Because I think, for me, I, I actually like Zoe Saldana as an actress. I think she's actually a gifted actress. I loved her in Colombiana, which was um, a drama about uh, the daughter of two dealers who ends up, uh, her parents are assassinated and she kind of goes on the run. And she, she demonstrated in that role that she has this power to emotionally carry um, a film and just do phenomenal work. So it's not in any way a negation of her skills as an actress. But I actually want to trouble the notion of, of actually bringing David into the conversation because I want to also think about um, beyond whether he accepts the role, I want to hear from her. Why did she accept the role? Because any actress who is playing anybody this big does extensive, extensive research when it comes to a biopic and when it comes to somebody who is a legend. And I would almost argue musically, Nina is a living legend for so many um, of us. Like death literally escaped her, such is the strength of her kind of um, her musical songbook. And so I almost say whatever he does or doesn't say, I want to hear from, from you as a woman. Like I want to hear about your choice to say yes to this role and what was your process that led you to believe that, yes, I can do this. I want to know when they first put that horrific black face on you and you looked in the mirror. I've often heard actors and actresses talk about 
as you put on the costume, there's a very specific transformation that takes place. And what does that mean? Um, how did you find that emotional world of Nina that is so specifically related to her particular version and vision of blackness? Like the shape of her nose matters in this space. The particular shade of her chocolate matters in this space and in the America that she was in and in the fact that she wanted to just be a classical musician, a classical pianist. And I think of that word classical, even as it relates to the notion of black beauty and how we think about classical black beauty and what that means. And Nina just never fit into anybody's notion of what quote unquote classic looks like. So I want to say to Zoe, for somebody in a Hollywood where your beauty in terms of blackness is classic, in, so in, in that it's very regular, it's what you see and what we see all the time. What decision process did you go through that led you to say, okay, this, this, playing Nina, becoming Nina on the big screen, this I can do. Like, that's the conversation that I want to hear. Because I almost think whatever we hear or whatever he says is, matters less to me than her choice to say yes. And then to actually face all of this, because the, you know, as we say in Ghana, the black, the backlash is plenty. You know, that is really hardcore. And so that particular choice interests me. And what was the conversation even around the notion of Nina's blackness and therefore Nina's relationship to beauty? Because how blackness was framed for her was poured into her music. And the way in which the variations of color came to be because of America's history for women tells us that this was all framed in her music. This is none of this is distant topic for her. She has an intimate relationship with her particular brand of blackness and how it manifests. So like I want to hear from, from Zoe and I haven't yet heard any interviews from, from her about her decision making and how she walked through this um, um, process. But I also wonder for a generation who doesn't know Nina whether this will be the kind of introduction for them that at least brings them to her work. I'm trying to look for some kind of lining, silver or otherwise. What do you all think? I read about some interviews with Zoe, rather. Um, not specific to this film, but where she did talk about her relationship to um, her own racial identity, where she said she's uncomfortable, you know, having to speak about it, that for her, um, there's no such thing as people of color because um, people aren't really white. Paper is white. Um and that doesn't mean that just because that's her relationship to, you know, to her racial identity that she couldn't play somebody else because the nature of acting is, is to put on um, a different pair of shoes, a different set of clothes, and to assume a different kind of personality and identity. But it does give one pause. And then the other person we heard from behind the scenes um, in relation to this particular role, it gives one pause. And then the other person that we heard from behind the scenes was uh, was Robert Johnson, whose company acquired the film for distribution and who is also the founder of BET. And so he justifies it by saying, you know, entertainment shouldn't be about the basis of color. It should be about the creativity and the commitment of the, of the actor. Um, but when you hear something like that from him, he spent so many years bringing detrimental and damaging images of black folks to the screens of millions of people <laughs> that that just kind of is, you know, you just kind of throw up your hands. I picture like that Spike Lee scene where everybody's standing at the 
bottom of a Brooklyn stupid just goes ah like you are you're looking for somebody either in front of the screen or behind the screen like somebody to be able to talk to us about why this kind of characterization is happening of her like it's a it's a specific kind of conversation when it's about Nina. So closing question, are you going to see the film when it drops in April? Yes or no? Will you take anybody to say to see the film in April? Yes or no? And why? Come on, I see. You know I'm not seeing that film. I'm not putting a dollar <laughs> in that pot, you know. I don't think I need to see the film to be critical of it. I actually don't need to speak of it ever again cuz as Shani mentioned earlier, I don't want to be haunted by Nina's spirit either. So we all probably <laughs> just need to head to Netflix and make sure we watch that documentary on her life. But um, no, I'm not going to see it. Shani? I'm going to keep an eye out for the bootleg. I don't want to financially support the movie either. Um, I do think it would be interesting from the perspective of a cultural critic to take it in. Um, so I'll, I'll have to find an alternative method <laughs> of, of, of checking it out. Okay. So the consensus is certainly from our contributors, they're not going to see it. So I guess in the end, do we feel good? Well, we feel great about Nina. As for Zoe, well, that's another conversation. Nina Simone, feeling good in voice, in spirit. She's in the grave, but, you know, Nina's ancestral. She can really come back and haunt some bitches. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. We've got to put that out there. Straight Put a spell on you. Cause you're mine. Do, 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 do. You better stop the things you do. I ain't lying.
Ah, the 
hound dogs on my trail School children sitting in jail Black hat cross my path I think every day is gonna be my last Lord have mercy on this land of mine We all gonna get it in due time I don't belong here, I don't belong there I've even stopped believing in prayer Just about do. I've been there, so I know. They keep on saying, go slow. That's what they say, go slow. That's what they say, go slow. That's what's the trouble. Slow. Washing the windows. Slow. Picking the cotton. Slow. We're nothing but rotten. Slow. We're too damn lazy. the first of our conversations. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women-of-color media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Our contributors this week are Dr. Yaba Blay and Shani Jamila. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in three FMs across studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the U.S. in Arizona, Ohio, North and South Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa on 3FM in Accra, Ghana and on WFM 91.7 Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. 
Time for our second discussion. Virginity tests for college-bound girls in South Africa. A mayor in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province of Yusuleka offers college scholarships to girls as long as they can prove they are still virgins. The proof comes from a, quote, virgin tester, unquote, a woman who ensures that the girl's hymen is still intact. Now, the teachers say it's about purity and choice, curbing HIV, teenage pregnancies, and ensuring access to and opportunity for higher education. The story has made global headlines. Take a listen to this BBC report by Nomsa Maseko, who actually travelled to the town of Yusukela in KwaZulu-Natal. Now, this province has the highest rates of teenage pregnancy and HIV in the whole of South Africa. From that report, here's Dudu Mazibuko, who is the mayor of Yusukela municipality. We are just awarding a good deed from the children who have taken decision to, to remain pure. Most of them are coming from poor families. We said, let us help them to, to go and study further said, so that they can be self-sustained. We are just encouraging them to abstain until they are ready to face, to face the world, until they are self-sustained. Uh, uh, and then they can uh, take the decision of what they want to do. Now take a listen to Dudu Zwane, the female teacher who is also the, quote, virgin tester, unquote. If you check that virginity, you just check uh, if it is still intact. It's your choice. You take it or leave it. It's your choice. You better you just check uh, if it is still intact and it's still white, it means that it's intact. And take a listen to this student, one of the Virgin Scholarship recipients. Her name is Thibulichle Dodlo. She explains her feelings about the tests. I decided to abstain from sex because I want to keep myself clean and not get infected with HIV. The virginity testing is not an invasion of privacy to me because I feel very comfortable if I'm done with it. And I wish these other, other young ones who are following us must make us their role models so that they can achieve many things in life without being disturbed and to, and to get a scholarship as well as us. Now, the virginity tests are not illegal in South Africa as long as the girl consents. But of course, she cannot apply for the scholarship unless she can prove she's a virgin. And that proof has to come from the school. Human rights groups say that the tests are unconstitutional and intrusive. And of course, there are other issues. They focus solely on the girl child. How would you test a boy for his virginity anyway? And it is discriminatory to link sex to education opportunity. And what about the reality of sexual abuse and rape? How does that change and shape this issue? Virginity tests in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. God damn. Shani Jamila, let me start with you. My immediate instinct was that this is not an initiative that I would personally be in support of. Um, while I understand the impulse to lessen the impact of STDs and HIV and pregnancy, I don't like the fact that this approach to a solution puts the full burden for that on young women. I don't like the fact that their education is being used as a bargaining chip um, rather than a human right. And I don't like the idea of subjecting these children to intrusive virginity tests. Now, it's complicated because of the cultural traditions at play, and I don't want to be the one just, you know, over here wagging my finger, but it does raise certain logistical questions like, for instance, what happens, God forbid, if one of them is abused or raped? 
and therefore no longer a virgin? Or what happens if their admittedly non-scientific tests aren't accurate? Or if someone's hymen breaks due to exercise or some other non-sexual activity? What of the shame is imposed upon them if anyone ever loses a scholarship? I can't even imagine the damage that that could wreck on somebody. So, you know, these these are my um, my initial thoughts to this to this story. Dr. Yababla? Yeah, I mean, likewise, um, it did make me cringe to even read the headline. And so watching the video and reading um, up on it, to me what stood out is the idea that we continue to place so much value on virginity for young women. And in that context and listening to the girls and listening to the women who were involved, the virgin tester, I mean, that's your job to be a virgin tester and you're proud of that. You know, like what is it that we are communicating to young girls about their bodies? It feels like, I don't know. And I, and I get it in terms of the problems with high teenage pregnancy in the area. But again, what conversation do we have with young men? Instead, there's a particular shame that I hear or that I feel or that I sense as I, as I hear about this um, that makes me uncomfortable. It's really interesting to me from several um, standpoints. Um, I'm sitting in Accra, Ghana, in the western part of Africa, and I think about a continent where, in so many ways, the wealth of this continent lies in the hands of men but its morality is judged by what happens between the legs of women and girls. And what is the connection between virginity and education? It's the idea of making girls pay for whatever choice they make by limiting their access to transform their lives, given that education is the sole avenue out of poverty in these specific rural spaces. That is literally the sole way out. So that's the, that's the first piece. The second piece is um, I, I always want to trouble the narrative around culture because whenever it, it has to do with notions of sex or purity, those kinds of notions, and people talk about culture, I always want to say, you show me the culture where education was dependent on what was happening between your legs. Which element of our culture has ever had that conversation? That is not about culture. It is using culture as a weapon to control what girls are doing. But the third really, really big piece is that in across South Africa, there are such high numbers around the sexual assault of children, of girl children in particular, there's such high numbers of sexual assault that the reality that those girls and even the women who are advocating that it happen might have been survivors of sexual assault and still advocate for what they know is deeply problematic doesn't make any sense. So I don't, the young student who spoke about, um, you know, I don't feel ashamed, I have no issue with being, with, with being tested, her individual choice should not influence an institutional practice by any stretch of the imagination. And the idea that you find the one young lady who says that it's okay and that becomes some kind of litmus test that makes the practice okay is incredibly dangerous to me. And, you know, thirdly, being in Ghana, um, being able to see up close and personally how powerful and important education is for girls in particular the idea that they're being held hostage by um, this notion of purity and virginity, I completely dispute that it has anything to do with teenage pregnancy and um, HIV. I think about 
being here in Ghana where there was a, an, a region called Brongahafo, where from January to June of 2015, 232 girls were pregnant. And that was a story in a newspaper. And there was all this outrage about these girls being pregnant. And then they said the ages. And their ages were 10 years old to 14 years old. And so they started having a conversation about teenage pregnancy and stopping sex. And I said, hold on, you're talking about sexual assault and rape. And the idea that there is no such parity conversation with boys, there is no conversation, and that is a consistent practice in other parts of the continent, is really, is really, really problematic because it is the idea that girls are the only ones who are engaged in sexual activity and the way and how they use their bodies. As long as that is controlled by other people by limiting their access to education, then these issues of HIV and uh, pregnancy can also, can also and equally be, contr be controlled. I think it's problematic. I think it's dangerous. I think it is a deep disrespect of these um, young women's bodies. And I think the fact that in the video, every person is a woman is no less problematic because I know that's what people will say. Well, it's a woman mayor. It's a woman teacher. It's a woman virgin tester. There are no men engaged in this particular issue. That makes it neither right, okay, nor in any way nor in any way does it make it any less of an, of an issue. Stop, think, think about yourself, about your health, about your wealth, and just stop, think, think positive, that's how you got to live, it's your prerogative to stop, think. Think about what your life is worth and how you might get hurt if you don't stop, think, so just stop, 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 stop. I know we're young and we adventurous, looking for that Russian to experiment with the drugs. And besides, it seems really cool with friends of ours. And being uncool don't make sense at all, that's when there's alcohol. And I don't want my friends to think I'm a punk. So it starts with a sip, then a drink to get drunk. Then it moves to the weed, to the spliffs and the blunts. Then it's pills at the clubs, now I'm addicted to drugs. And yo, don't be fooled by how cool it seems. Cause son, you will lose your dreams, your fuel and steam. It'll take away all of your opportunities. You will lose friends and family once you're a fiend Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to preach, I'm not here to lecture But watch the company you keep and the peer pressure Because your life is a treasure And I'd hate to see you wasting it in jail or dying on a stretcher Stop, think, think about yourself, about your health, about your wealth And just stop, think, think positive That's how you got to live, it's your prerogative to stop, think Think about what your life is worth and how you might get hurt if you don't stop, think, so just stop, stop. Or when you have a low self-esteem and you barely love yourself You're trying to escape but you thinking that drugs are help The only thing that drugs are do is mess up your health Not to mention, you can never escape yourself So stop trying, cause there are other ways to solve them When you and your fam have communication problems And that's when all your self-worth is forgotten But drugs are not the answer cause that's rock bottom So stop, think, think Think about your loved one, son, stay away from drugs and yo, do not just drink. A lot of people don't know, but alcohol or weed are gateway drugs. So listen, drugs are miserable and drugs will imprison you. There's a slow decay of the mind, body and spirit too. You will lose yourself if you let the drugs get to you. So get rid of the drugs before they get rid of you. Stop, think, think about yourself, about your health, about your wealth. And just stop, think. 
think positive. That's how you got to live. It's your prerogative to stop thinking. Think about what your life is worth, and now you might get hurt if you don't stop think. So just stop, 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 stop. It's easier to get in than to get out. Take up for me, life is so much better without. The load is a lot lighter to carry around, and you have a lot less to think and worry about. So do yourself a favor, empower yourself with education. And if you got problems, just learn to face them. I'd hate to see you wasting your life as a drug patient, struggling with rehabilitation. And don't be naive and think that drugs are cool, cause drugs are cruel. Awareness is a vital tool, and if I were you, I would get high on life. Cause getting high on drugs has too high a price And my life is worth more Education and knowledge, those are the keys that are open the doors To a world of experiences So stop and think, and you realize how serious this is Stop, think, think about yourself, about your health, about your wealth And just stop, think, think positive That's how you got to live, it's your prerogative So stop, think Think about what your life is worth and how you might get hurt if you don't stop, think. So just stop, 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 stop. Let's go from South Africa back to the U.S., specifically Georgia. Georgia, Georgia, the whole day through, just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. An African-American junior in high school was reduced to tears as she recounted what happened in a classroom after she says she asked her teacher a simple question. She suffers with an eye condition that keeps her out of class, and so her school had given her an iPad, and she was trying to catch up before a test. She recorded her lesson. The teacher's response to her question was also recorded on the iPad. He can be heard saying, and I quote, I have been around 37 years, and clearly you are the dumbest girl I have ever met. You know what your purpose is going to be? To have sex and have children, because you ain't never gonna be smart, unquote. The student's name is Shania Hunter, and with her mother, Kathy Wright, and her aunt, Christy Lockhart, beside her, she explained to Atlanta's WSB-TV news show how she felt about her teacher's words. It really hurt me inside because I don't think it's okay. I don't think you should be there. Shania's mother approached the school district but was unsatisfied with their response. She's now hired a lawyer, Ben Wyndham, who has taken the case pro bono. Shania's lawyer explained the family is not seeking damages or money. They want the teacher fired. The man does not need to be teaching young children. It's not a gray area. End of story. Shania's aunt, Christy Lockhart, says what happened to her niece is symptomatic of a larger issue about schools' treatment of black children. This is about a school system 
that is failing our children and allowing these acts to go on. Shania's mama's words were simple. We're going to keep fighting. We're going to fight. We're going to keep fighting till it's, it's over. It's not over yet. It ain't over yet. Dr. Yabba Blair, your thoughts? I mean, this absolutely has to do with the disregard for black children. Um, because what is it in you as an educator, as a teacher, um, that makes you think it is okay for you to talk to anyone, let alone anyone's child like that? Did you think there would be no repercussions? Does she come from no one? Does she come from nowhere? She's not going to go and report. And if she does, you're untouchable. How dare you? You know, and so I don't really have <laughs> many thoughts because it enrages me. Um, the idea that, that, that an educator would speak to someone's child, a human being, that way. Shani Jamila. It's just abhorrent. It's indefensible. And adults speaking to a child like that, a grown man speaking to a girl like that, an authority figure speaking to a student like that, and, you know, really all categories aside, a person speaking to a person like that, it almost feels like the verbal version of the physical assault of that young girl in South Carolina who was dragged out of her chair, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no doubt in my mind that he should be fired, but it feels like his punishment should have more substance than that because this kind of ugly attempt to break her spirit is a kind of experience that this girl is never, never going to forget. So I'm really I'm grateful that she's surrounded by a supportive family and a lawyer that's all fit to take this case on pro bono because of its impact. Um, and I really sincerely hope that it turns out to be one of those pivotal points in Shania's life where she decides to use it as one of her many motivations to become the greatest success. I have two specific issues, one with um, the teacher's actions and secondly with the school's reaction. So, I mean, the teacher is just indefensible. And I, and, and I think it is specifically about a teacher, an authority figure, uh, speaking to a child um, in a classroom in front of all of her peers. It is specifically about shaming, trying to break um, uh, someone's spirit and refusing to be challenged just on the basis of asking a question. If you think about uh, part of the point of education is encouraging children to think. Um, and the idea that a thought, a question, which is such an important part of what it means to be educated, to actually ask questions and think, is responded to with that kind of derisiveness and dismissiveness and insult. Uh, I just have no um, language. And watching the, um, the Atlanta WSB TV um, news report with her mother and her aunt, and you know everybody's just tears in tears watching this child just break down, telling the story again. But she also says two things. One is that this is never, this is not the first time this teacher has used that kind of language on children in her classroom. She's simply the first one to speak up. Um, the second point is that they've been they've been fighting the school district. The mother said her initial response from the school was 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 she was totally dissatisfied with that. As far as she was aware, the teacher was the teacher was still teaching. The, um, the lawyer is simply saying, nobody wants money, nobody cares about money. He just should not be teaching children, which is also what Shania said. He shouldn't, I don't think this is okay, and he shouldn't be allowed in a classroom um, again. But I also think about, um, as I read up about it in terms of the uh, federal response, one of the things they were saying is that they have, a, they have very little authority to take action about a teacher's actions in the classroom in the form in which they happened. 
And I thought to myself, really? Where on earth is that written? And that they responded to the media, but refused to respond to the parents. And one of the things her aunt said is that this case is symptomatic to how the institution of high school is treating black boys and girls across the board. And that is that they are disposable, they can be spoken to anyhow, and that the idea that their spirits can actually be broken, that they're human beings who need to be nurtured and cared for, is something that can be completely dismissed. And she should just get over it and keep it moving and keep going. And so um, I was really, as I watched the news, the news item, I was really um, just happy to see her family all around her and to hear her mother, the last words of the report were saying, this is not over, um, we're going to keep going and we're going to keep fighting. But also the, the point is she should not have to be dragging lawyers into her, her child's classroom for her child to be respected and treated with the respect that she as a human being um, deserves. So we're going to do a swagger salute to Mishanaya Hunter for speaking up in the first place and you know, for reminding her that speaking up sometimes is the hardest thing, but it's the thing that distinguishes you in all kinds of ways. So that um, teacher who said she has an eye condition, she may have an eye condition, but that young lady, that young sister has vision. She has vision enough to speak up and to stand up. And that, that matters. That definitely matters. So that's your hour. We can say to that teacher, God damn you as well, since we're damning everybody on this show right now from Zoe Saldana on on and beyond. That's your hour. Thank you so much to Dr. Yabba Blay and Shani Jamila. Thanks, ladies. Thank you so Thank much for having us. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucker and the AAPRC. Follow me on Twitter at Esther Armour. Put The Spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.